This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show for another Mayor's Monday, not on Monday, uh, which is <laughs> We had be, one on Tuesday. We had one on too. Tuesday, which I thought was Monday all day, or at least until Monty <laughs> reminded me after the show that Tuesday was Tuesday and not Monday, but so be it. We have with us the Mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegartner. I would love to come back to the topic we were talking about when you were last with us, Madam Mayor, and that is the situation involving the police in Greenfield. And it's of, I think, particular interest for people up and down the valley because it what has happened in Greenfield, of course, has this resonance with this uh, movement. Uh, yeah. Uh, more prominent uh, after the murder of George Floyd, but I think still with uh, pr- uh, some prominence, and that is the defund the police movement. And mm. what and what happened in Greenfield was that there was a jury verdict against the police department and the chief, which found that the Greenfield Police Department had engaged in racial discrimination. And there was a verdict... Uh, relatively modest in terms of the actual damage, the, the concrete damages. But then there was another, I think, three hundred and twenty-five dollars or $350,000 in damages awarded by the jury uh, for emotional distress to the officer who didn't receive the promotion. Again, on the basis, as the jury found, of uh, racial discrimination. And in response to that, the Greenfield City Council cut the budget of the Greenfield Police Department by a very significant amount involving the elimination of seven or eight positions out of the total of 35, 32 or 35 on the police department, a very significant cut. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could uh, amplify what I've, the story I've just told, tell our listeners what it is they may have left out. And then I want to get to the question with you with how this is affecting the police department uh, and the status of the appeal and a number of other related matters that have been in the news, including an audit which you are seeking of the police department. But first, let's go back and backfill what I've left out about this story that you think is important to tell. Well, sure. What I think I would do is just give you a, a bit of an update on it because we have done we've done what we had to do. Um, so yes, it's it's you're correct. Um, the city council did. Uh, cut $400,000 out of the permanent salary and wages um, line item, which was $2,854,143. Now, that's the total on that. Um, and that includes, you know, also, it, uh, everything. Longevity pay, overtime, you know, it's that, that numbers. Uh, and at the time, we have had 34 officers, which the update is that because they did that, we, of course, had to make adjustments uh, to the policing staff, um, and that was possibly going to cause the layoff of seven or eight officers. Well, in the meantime, through various things, I mean, we have to fund the police department one way or the other, and we have to... We have to ensure that there are enough police officers available to to do the police work that they have to do, and that includes everything from drug investigations, uh, elder abuse investigations, uh, domestic violence, uh, community policing, the whole nine yards. And with only 34 officers in the first place, it's a little difficult if you have to cut, you know, eight of them off uh, out of the budget. We did a lot of hiring of new officers, highly skilled. They they weren't brand new out of the academy. They came, some of them came from Northampton. They, um, because of their cuts last year, I guess, and these people wanted to go someplace where they thought the city supported the police department. So these are last hired. So unfortunately, under the contract, the patrol officer's contract, first fired. So, um We've been able to, through a couple of different things, one very a senior officer, uh, Laura Gordon, who was the community police officer and homeless liaison. I mean, she did a lot of work, and she 
ran the Comfort Dog Program, which is um, recognized nationwide. Um, she does a lot of work with the homeless people and just going right to where they are, no matter the day or time or the weather, uh, time of year or the weather. So it's a big loss. But- Let me inter- interrupt you there. I, I want you to finish that story. Laura Gordon, as I recall the article in the Greenfield Recorder, is the senior officer who said she was going to take a voluntary leave so that more junior recent hires can continue yeah, to work so- at, the, at, at the department. Is that right? That is correct. And so with Laura Gordon's salary now available, so I forget the amount of money, but it was, you know, it's for a six. It's enough for a officer um, and a couple of uh, pending retirement in January. Um, some other officers who are taking signal, signals that they want to take voluntary leave. These are senior officers. We don't really want to lose our senior staff, but um, but they're willing to do this in order to protect the others, at least take temporary leaves, which is what Laura's is in order to protect these officers for a year till we can get right-sized in the budget. So what it boils down to is, I think, and then there's some other additional um, ways within the budget that we've been able to find to, to lessen the blow. Um, so we are down to perhaps a layoff, potential layoff of four officers, uh, not eight, which is, that's good. Good. <laughs> I'd like to find the money to fund the other four, but um, but that's kind of where we're at. And we were, and the schedules for these officers have been adjusted so that we do run all of our shifts. We just don't run them with as many police officers. We can't take as many calls per shift as we were once able to. So they prioritize the call to basically life and property safety. Okay, let me ask you about that. Um, I, I'm interested to know how uh, a police department that is going to have less resources actually engages in this priority process uh, and whether there are what's called stacking of calls, calls that can't be responded to immediately. How is it actually going to affect the people of Greenfield that there will be fewer resources, uh, one of which, as I read in the recorder, uh, in part because of the cost of uh, fuel, uh, indicates that there will be uh, fewer patrol cars out. So tell us more about how the priorities for calls into the station will be be handled. Well, you're right. Um, There will be – there are normally – six officers on every shift. Um, they used to handle calls. Um, you know, you might need, an officer would go out to a call if he needed, he or she needed backup, they would they would call for backup and there'd be another officer available for them, so forth and so on. Um, I mean, this is sort of a loose way of explaining it. So now what we have to do is have We really can't have fewer than four on duty per shift. Um, So now we have, I think with uh, being able to save some of the officers, um, we will have at least two, um, four patrol officers on every shift. Um, But that means if, and they're, and because of also cuts in our uh, that the city council did in our uh, in our um, expense budget, um, I forget it was twenty five thirty thousand dollars somewhere along in there. And because of rising cost in fuel, um, we can't cover. We've we have difficulty covering the the fuel budget for FY twenty two, let alone going into FY twenty three. So um, so that decision was made that two, only two car, only two patrol cars would be on the road at a time and available for calls. So if somebody's two, and two police officers per car, per car. Um, 
you know, it, it is more efficient in some ways, certainly fuel efficient. Um, but, you know, normally if we were even applying that, I guess we'd have at least three on the road, three cars on the road. Now we're going to have only two. Um, so if one call needs four officers and that has happened in the past, then there's other calls that are going to come in that aren't going to get covered. Uh, or if two are out to a call and there's a couple of calls that come in simultaneously, unfortunately, people, you know, <laughs> things don't don't adjust just because you've had to adjust your staffing levels. <laughs> so if people call in and, you know, there's just going to be some calls that aren't going to be answered uh, right away. Um, and... And that's just the way it's going to be. They will de- dispatch will determine the, as best they can the severity of the call or the need, and um, dispatch officers um, who can then assess what the what the situation is. In Greenfield, does is dispatch part of the police department? Does a nine one one call go to the police department? It, it, that's where it's located. They handle police and fire. Okay, and. Given that there will be uh, fewer patrol cars on the, the the road, but they will now have two officers per car, I, I understand the efficiencies there. What does that mean in terms of who is left in the police station, uh, I guess, other than dispatch? Other, uh, staff, uh, senior command staff. There's, all, there's always um, senior staff. Um, in the in the in the building. So so the basic uh, personnel allocation is there'll be a senior staff person in the building to run the department for that shift. Yeah, the, commander. The, the commander. There'll be one person uh, answering the phone, uh, dispatch, and taking calls and doing all of those. Oh. Th- that. Yeah, one. But there's there's a team of dispatchers there, so that, because they do they handle. A lot of nine one one calls. Right, right. And then there'll so, be then there'll be four officers in two cruisers on the road. That's what it looks like. That's pretty much what it'll look like for now. Yeah, yeah. L- and uh, at, that there won't be any bicycle patrol, which we do, especially this you know during the good part of the year. Um, uh, Acting Chief Gordon basically has set this budget priority for us for at least for the next four or five, six months to um, keep as many police officers employed as possible using the FY23 budget now that we're in FY23 so that we can at least, you know, summertime's always seems to be apparently a little busier than other other times of year. Um, so that's basically. Which is, which is something I want to ask about. We need to take a quick break. We're speaking with the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegartner. When we come back, I'm going to ask about acting police chief, how long that will go on for. I want to know about the audit of the police department that the mayor has requested and other questions about how policing will work in the city. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. And I'm Mortgage Originator Jessica Eau Claire. Did you know you can start your pre-qualification or mortgage application online? Head on over to our new website at bestlocalbank.com and apply today. Or, if you prefer, come see us in person at one of our Hampshire or Franklin County locations. Right now, we're also giving you the opportunity to save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. That's right. You get $750 plus another $250 
when we pre-qualify you for a mortgage. It's the best local mortgage from the best local bank. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Missy Tatro. Or me, Jessica Eau Claire, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by September 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. State Street Fruit Store. What the heck is a fruit store anyway? Well, State Street opened in Northampton in the 1920s as a fruit store, selling local fruit and other produce from the valley. And even though State Street has grown to be much more deli, wines, spirits, they are still a fruit store. And right now, State Street and their sister store, Cooper's Corner in Florence, are buried in berries, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, schnozberries. Okay, they don't have any schnozberries, but they've got every other kind of local berry going. State Street, Fruit Store, and Cooper's Corner have always offered produce, picked by our Connecticut River Valley neighbors as soon as, and as long as, they're available. So come get fruit at a fruit store. Northampton has always been a fruity place. We are what we eat. State Street Fruit Store in Northampton and Cooper's Corner in even fruitier Lawrence. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillicorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. Y hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegartner. I'd like to ask you, Madam Mayor, if I might, you mentioned in our earlier segment the acting police chief. How long will Greenfield have an acting police chief? And maybe you want to backfill the story for us and tell us why we have an acting police chief, why you have an acting police chief instead of just a police chief. Sure. Um, how long it'll go on is not not uh, n- exactly known at this time. We um, we have the uh, discrimination trial, the civil trial, and activities that occurred during the trial in terms of testimony and of voir dire, I'm going to try to make this short, um, caused, um, created a, a bit of a stir within the trial. And um, as a result of that, complaints were filed against one of the plaintiffs in the in the trial. Uh, separate from the actual reason they were there. Um, and that uh, has been before the judge to unseal the voir dire so that I could, not just me, but so that there could be an in- an independent investigation of of these, this particular testimony between Police Chief Haig and um, Lieutenant Todd Dodge. Um, so they... Um, so far, the plaintiffs' attorneys have been able to block the unsealing of that voir dire. Uh, but nevertheless, I put both Lieutenant Dodge and, and Police Chief Haig on uh, paid administrative leave pending the outcome of the investigation. That was prior to the city council uh, cutting the the, uh, the budget. So... Um, so we're we talking weeks, we're we talking months. Do you have any idea? Yeah, yeah I think we are talking of at least a couple months. The investigation is currently going on now. Well, it starts in earnest July 13th, so it won't be till next week, uh, with interviews by an outside independent investigating agency uh, of people that were, you know, witnesses to this uh, this testimony within the trial. It was of Wadir, you know, with the judge. So, um, and that includes the, you know, Chief Haig and and Lieutenant Dodge and the others. Uh, Lieutenant uh, Dodge is now back on uh, duty. 
uh, Police Chief Haig remains uh, off uh, on paid leave of absence. Um, that's not a a statement against the, the chief per se. Um, it was just, it's just something that we we felt was was needed for uh, until we could get the investigation up and running and complete it. Let me ask about something else in that regard. Uh, also in the recorder this week, your request for an audit of the police department. What would an audit do? What is it based on? Is uh, I take it it's similar in some ways to what is happening in the city of uh, Holyoke that uh, Mayor Joshua Garcia has told us about. Tell us what, what. Tell us where that stands. The audit of the police department and what it's going to accomplish, if in your in your hopes and expectations. Sure. I um, had, there, because of the results of the trial, there was a lot of conversation amongst the public about the police department, and it was my feeling that there are a lot of people that really don't know <laughs> what's going on or don't know the police department but have a lot of opinions, um, and uh, happened to be talking to actually Mayor Garcia, who mentioned that he was doing an audit. And I investigated further what an audit might mean. Um, for instance, the city of um, Albany in 2020 did a audit of their police department uh, based on racial bias. In other words, they looked at all the operational aspects of the police department. So their organizational structure and governance, their operating policies and procedures, department culture, hiring and promotional practices, professional standards and accountability, budgeting and planning. Looking at, at it, those, all those areas, uh, an independent audit group. Is it, is it, is it, does the audit also look at the uh, uh, culture of the police department? Does, yeah. does it look into uh, hiring practices, uh, anti-discrimination uh, policies? Does it do all absolutely. that as well? Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. That is that is basically the basis of 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 the audit. Um, you know, other police departments don't do it based on the potential for racial bias. Uh, others do it because, and I think this may be true of Holyoke, just because there's a perception in the community and perhaps even some basic reality. I don't know the story of Holyoke that well. I know that Josh is a fairly new mayor there, but. Um, that uh, that, the, that the police department just isn't run well, it's not efficient, this, that, and the other thing. And there's, I, there's some speculation about Greenfield. You know, as mayor, I, I get a pretty up-close and personal uh, look at it. So I, I don't necessarily agree, but I don't know either. So I think what we needed was someone from the outside who is skilled in this, and there are three or four different firms, um, out there. So we'll do a, a, you know, a 30B, a competitive bid process, as did Holyoke, and hopefully have people bid and come up with someone uh, to award the bid to that will then start this process of looking at all those aspects that I mentioned and the ones that you mentioned. You know, certainly hiring practices is really under hiring and promotional practices, which was the meat of this this particular civil suit that we had. But, um, you know, your operating policies and procedures, um, how your, how, what the organizational structure is and how it's governed, and particularly, yes, department culture. And they do that through a series, they gather a significant amount of information from the police department, from the public, um, you know, citizens, from people that interact with the police department over time. Um, this police department is one of uh, a few in Massachusetts, I mean, in Western Mass that are accredited and they receive, they received their accreditation renewal again this year, actually on the very day that the, um, that the verdict in the court case came down, which was just coincidental, but nevertheless, <laughs> we, we passed with flying colors. Um, and those are very, very extensive. So, there's on the one hand an odd a, a accreditation would would sort of uncover things but it's it's not looked at from the standpoint i guess in a more forensic way that the audit would you know and it doesn't involve talking to citizens and 
gaining their experience and uh, with the police department and so forth. Madam Mayor, uh, we have about a minute left, and this is a question Great. question that is a different topic, but I'd like to yeah. ask, have your comment, if you would, please. Front page of the Greenfield Recorder this morning, zoning change could stop huge pot grow. It's a story about the uh, marijuana cultivation in a large plot of land in Greenfield. Uh, where does yeah. that stand, and how uh, much is Greenfield depending on uh, marijuana cultivation and or pot shops for revenue? Uh, how important is this uh, for the city? Well, where it stands is on the 12th, so next week, there will be a, a joint public hearing between the Economic Development Com Subcommittee of the Council and the Planning Board to review the two zoning bylaws that were put forth. One was a moratorium on a one-year moratorium on all um, new outdoor marijuana grows. So it's very, very specific in that respect, not other, you know, retail stores or anything like that, just outdoor marijuana grows. And then uh, one to reduce the uh, number of the level, the tier level for all outdoor grows to the, the top number would be um, you could only have five, you could only have 5,000 square feet. So it's a tier one, I think, uh, of, of canopy. Now you could have as many as three uh, on one plot. What this particular company, and there's three of them, there's three limited liability companies that have banded together, wanted was and received from uh, the CBA under their permit is a tier 11, which is 100,000 square feet of canopy. And they have three of them. So you're looking at basically 300,000. I've not figured out how many actual where, you know, you're looking at a lot, <laughs> 300,000 square feet of canopy, canopy of um, for marijuana growing. And this is going to yeah. be decided by the ZBA next week. No, the planning board and the, and the, it, 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 the zoning changes, the planning board in this particular case is a planning board um, function. Um, and the EDC of the city council, sometimes they work together on it because ultimately the council has to vote. So the EDC has to make a recommendation. That uh, the legal opinion said uh, moratoriums are likely not to be legal. Um, and But it did say that changing the um, level of tiers that we could have for outdoor grows, and particularly in the case of the of the uh, grow in uh, the area in question, uh, it does not substantially quote unquote something like the it does not substantially reduce. It still allows them to grow marijuana. They just can't grow enough as much as they thought they could. So it's not necessary. It will affect them. They can if they pass this zoning bylaw. They can go back and require them to reduce the amount of canopy. We are going to leave it there. We've been speaking with the mayor yep. of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegarner. Thanks so much for your time this month again, and thank you for being with us every month. We really appreciate it, Madam Mayor. This is Mayor's Friday on WHMP. Thank you so much. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The City of Northampton will hold a public forum to discuss purchasing 230 acres of land to expand the 800-acre Sawmill Hills Conservation Area in Florence. The city would need to apply for a $400,000 grant from the Community Preservation Act, which will be awarded before the end of the year. The city has a purchase and sale agreement with the land's owner for $690,000. The virtual meeting will be held at 5 p.m. on Monday. Amherst police are investigating after white supremacist flyers were found over the 4th of July weekend. Amherst Chief of Police Scott Livingstone confirmed that flyers from a group that calls itself the Nationalist Social Club were found in the Echo Village neighborhood. According to the Anti-Defamation League, the Nationalist Social Club is a neo-Nazi group with small chapters throughout the country and abroad. The police are also asking people in the Echo Hill neighborhood to let them know if they caught any suspicious activity on a doorbell camera or home security system.
A plan to provide relief from inflation to Massachusetts residents through the Taxpayer Energy and Economic Relief Fund in the form of one-time checks is being introduced by state legislators. Individuals making less than $100,000 a year would receive a $250 check, and couples making less than $150,000 per year would receive $500. Senator John Velas said he expects the bill to pass before the end of the legislative session at the end of July, and taxpayers could see a check by the end of September. Sun cloud combination today, a little bit on the humid side. Watch out for a widely scattered to isolated shower this afternoon, a high of 84 to 88. Slight chance for a shower this evening, but generally it's dry overnight low of 58 to 64. Mostly sunny, breezy, dry tomorrow, a high of 80 to 84. 81, mostly sunny on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La ciudad de Holyoke está solicitando la participación del público en una encuesta que está diseñada para los residentes y electores de Holyoke sobre la recuperación de COVID-19. Como incentivo, se está ofreciendo un almuerzo con el alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, o una tarjeta de regalo de 200 dólares. La ciudad de Holyoke recibió más de 40 millones de dólares en fondos de recuperación fiscal local y estatal de coronavirus de la Ley del Plan de Rescate Estadounidense del Tesoro de los Estados Unidos para ayudar en la recuperación de la pandemia de COVID-19. La primera mitad de los fondos de ARPA se proporcionó a proyectos como subvenciones para pequeñas empresas, infraestructura de agua y alcantarillado, desarrollo de viviendas asequibles, organizaciones sin fines de lucro para mejorar sus instalaciones y servicios de salud mental el año pasado. La ciudad, a través de la Oficina de Desarrollo Comunitario, está realizando una encuesta para comprender mejor las necesidades de la comunidad para la próxima ronda de financiación. La ciudad está invitando al público a que participe en la encuesta comunitaria de ARPA, disponible escaneando un código QR o en línea. De igual forma, también puede solicitar una copia en papel llamando al 413-322-5610 o en holyoke.org. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden entregó la medalla presidencial de la libertad, el mayor honor civil de la nación, en una ceremonia que brindó un momento de bienestar para una Casa Blanca que lidia con encuestas que indican que una abrumadora mayoría de estadounidenses piensa que el país está en el camino equivocado y tiene bajos índices de aprobación para Biden. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our weekly segment, Your State, You, with Max Page, who is the vice president and president-elect of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max, I want to ask you about something I'm reading about. I think it's coming up for a vote in the legislature, and that is the question of MCAS scores and their requirement, the requirement for a passing MCAS score to graduate high school. What is going on with the legislature? What does the proposed bill do or not do? Help us understand this, please. Sure, good morning, Bill. So it's actually, the legislature plays a role, but actually uh, in this case, a very good role. I'll get to that in a second. It's actually the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, which uh, oversees our uh, million, nearly million students uh, in public schools across the Commonwealth. And they are, they have basically put forward a proposal which they intend to vote on on July 25th that would raise the, the level at which students must, re must reach on their 10th grade MCAS. Students take the, the testing every year from third grade on, but Massachusetts is one of only 11 states that requires a passing score on the 10th grade MCAS in order to get a diploma, a high school diploma. And they are planning, the, the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, under the leadership of Commissioner Jeff Riley, to raise that level, the, the base level at which you, you, know, the, you need to pass in order to get your diploma. That's what they are proposing and intend to vote on on the 25th of July. And that agency has the discretion to decide whether or not well, what the level of accomplishment under of the MCAS test needs to be in order to receive an actual high school diploma? It's up to the board? That is exactly right. And it is a 
largely Charlie Baker appointed board at this point. So what is the board apt to do? Can the legislature intervene in some way? Is, what, what can people do if those, those of us who say MCAS is not how you should determine if a student has received a high school education or not? Well, so Bill, um, the legislature cannot directly intervene unless it decided to change the law um, on on the, the powers of the uh, Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. That's not happening anytime soon, or maybe, although maybe that needs to be put on the table. What I will say is that led by our own Senator Joe Comerford, <clears throat> nearly 100 legislators, bipartisan, Democrats, Republicans, House and Senate, have signed a letter a few weeks back urging that they, that the the board not lift those scores and it's it's quite a powerful letter and this is something that um senator Comerford Comerford has worked with us and has worked with constituents very powerfully on and if i if it's okay can i just read a paragraph from that letter sure please that was the board um the letter says raising mcas passing scores is likely to intensify not reverse negative consequences of 24 years of the high stakes mcas the negative consequences would be the most onerous for groups of students who already suffer and were disproportionately harmed by the COVID-19 pandemic, especially English learners and students with disabilities, as well as Black and Latinx students. It is worth noting that these are the very students the MCAS purports to help. So that is one, just one um, paragraph from a letter signed by um, nearly 100 senators and reps. And I will note one of the points that Senator Cumberford has made and we have made is that over the over the past nearly 20 years, more than 52,000 students have gotten to 12th grade got, with passing grades, but they did not pass the MCAS and therefore they are not going to get a high school diploma, which sets them back in their life perhaps forever. They get a certificate of attendance, something like that. Exactly. Even though research has shown over and over that it is the grades one achieves, the credits one assembles over 12 years of schooling, that is a far better measure than any one uh, test. So this is, a, a, you know, especially concerning that we are, that we've created this, you know, one test and now they want to raise the level yeah. Um, and that it leaves people out. So one last question on this, Max. Why do they want to raise the level now? What, what's the motivation? What's, the, what's behind it? Well, this is, the, this is the George Bush School of Educational Policy. Namely, if you may remember George, George Bush, or maybe you don't. You, um, you know, when I mean, he back in the, the day of so-called moderate Republicans? That's uh, hard <laughs> well, to remember. You know, his um, race to the top or, you know, new no no child left behind educational policies was to say every single kid would be reading at grade level in four years. And that, that was considered policy, good policy, ridiculous, unreasonable policy. But somehow, if we just decide that that's going to be the level, then everyone will rise to that. In fact, what um, we have seen and what also the legislative letter reminds us of is that over these past 20 years, the gap between low-income students and students of color and wealthier and whiter students has only grown in the MCAS. So if the whole purpose of the MCAS was to be able to figure out who was behind and lift them up and get them even with um, the, the uh, you know, wealthier kids in, in those districts, in fact, it is it is only exacerbated, exacerbated it. But like, if you can hear the, the knocking of my head against the wall, this is the approach of Bessie, which is continue to do what has not worked. And so we're very much opposed to this lifting of this, these MCAS scores as a very blunt instrument um, for educational policy. So just back to my question, just before we end, Max, what has motivated the uh, bureaucrats who oversee MCAS to say, let's do this. We're just past the pandemic. Kids have really been deprived of their uh, ability to go to school. It is a really good time to make sure kids don't get their diploma. Why, why now? Bill, they really are convinced. This is a core part of the ed reform movement is a belief that you must have 
the MCAS, and that it is, it is a measure, it is both a measure of educational quality and it is also the kind of the stick to hold over schools and educators. That if you raise the scores, people will rise to that level and people will, and the students will do better. This is, this is a core bit of philosophy. I, it's not even philosophy, I call it faith. And it's a little hard to argue with faith, even in the face of facts. Yes, because the facts say their entire premise is actually wrong. Max Page, you have a final final 30 seconds before we get to run. Nope, so I just want to remind people July 25th, um, and there is a public comment period to make um, one's views known about this. And I and then as a final just pitch, to join me 2 p.m. in Pittsfield to um, do, go door to door to canvas for the fair share amendment, AKA the millionaire's tax and Monty Belmonte will tell you <laughs> whether you like it or not, you're not making a million dollars a year. So let's tax those who do and invest it in our public schools and colleges and transportation systems. We 2 p.m. in Pittsfield, see you there. 2 p.m. when? Sunday. Thank you, Max. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Martha Graham, Mum and Chance, Blind Boys, Cherish the Ladies, Peking Acrobats, Ukraine Philharmonic, Nikki, and Stomp, all on their way to the UMass Fine Arts Center. Mum and Chance in their 50th year, Cherish the Ladies, A Celtic Christmas, the Martha Graham Dance Company with the Lost Graham Masterwork Canticle for Innocent Comedians. Snarky Puppy unleashes their ferocious improvisation. Nikki shines a ray of pop sunshine. And Gina Chavez blends the sound of the Americas with tension and grace. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, plus performances you just can't categorize. Stomp arrives for three performances. Head-turning trumpeter Sean Jones leads his quartet on stage, plus visits the UMass High School Jazz Festival. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the full calendar and tickets. Dinner tonight starts with a tap. Tap the local hero guide on the CESA website and find farm fresh food close to where you are. There are so many farms and farm stands just minutes away. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label in stores and restaurants. Local Hero Food, the beauty and the bounty of our fertile River Valley farmlands on your dinner table tonight. The Local Hero Guide is at the CESA website, buylocalfood.org. I never voyaged so far in all my life. You'll see men you never heard of before, whose names you don't know, going long way down through the meadows with long ducking guns and watertight boots, wading through the meadow grass, looking at ducks, teal, blue wing, green wing, sheldrakes, ospreys, and many other wild and noble sights before night, such as they who sit in parlors never dream of. You shall see rude and sturdy, experienced and wise men, keeping their castles or teaming up their summer's wood, chopping alone in the woods, Men fuller of talk and rare adventure in the sun and the wind and chestnut is of meat, who were not only out in 1775 and 1812, but have been out every day of their lives. Greater men than Homer or Chaucer or Shakespeare, only they never got the time to say so. They never took to the way of writing. Look at their fields and imagine what they might write if ever they should put pen to paper. This Thoreau reading is brought to you by the Franklin Land Trust. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The beat goes on. And this is Artbeat with our segment host, Donabelle Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donabelle, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. You know, there is a gorgeous exhibit that is traveling throughout the U.S., and we are very fortunate to have it stop here at our very own Springfield Museums. It's called 
Washi Transformed New Expressions in Japanese Paper, and it's on view through September 4th. And joining us today is Curator of Art for the Springfield Museum's Maggie North. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here, thrilled to talk about this really exciting summer exhibition, which I think will surprise and inspire our visitors. It's all about, as you mentioned, new artwork being created in washi paper. Well, Maggie, what is washi? Great question. Washi is the Japanese word for a special type of handmade Japanese paper. This is a paper that is actually created from the fibers of plants found natively in Japan. So most often the paper mulberry tree or the gampi tree are the plants that contribute fibers which are then broken down and mixed with water as well as a binding agent to create a special kind of paper. And this type of paper is stronger than most of our typical paper that we use in our daily life. It's a textural but beautifully supple paper that has these dual qualities of being both strong and durable as well as malleable. So that's why artists are so attracted to this special kind of paper and it's been used in Japan for hundreds of years in traditional art making like printmaking and painting. But the artists who are featured in Washi Transform are using this paper in a new way. They're creating sculptures and installations, really using this material as a contemporary art material. Now, I've seen some of the images and they are so beautiful and captivating. Now, there are over 30 pieces in this exhibit. Can you please describe some of the works we can look forward to seeing? Absolutely. I think that visitors will be surprised by the scale of some of the works on view in this exhibition. I think that when we think about paper, we often think about works that are small in size or that are flat and can be hung on a wall. But really, visitors are going to be encountering um, paper sculptures, folding screens, massive installations, and textural wall pieces when they enter this exhibition. So there's in an incredible variety of types of works of art and actually nine artists each with a unique and different style is represented. Um, one of my favorite pieces in the exhibition is actually also the largest piece in the exhibition. It's a 16 foot wide installation made from paper. Whoa. It's by an artist. It's amazing, really <laughs> large and really has impact. You'll see it right away when you walk into the galleries. Um, it's by an artist named Aomi Yoshida who is an artist who comes from this long line of Japanese woodblock printmakers. And she herself is a printmaker, but she also creates large installation pieces. And the work on view in the exhibition was created just last year. Um, so brand new. This is the first exhibition in which it can be seen. Um, and it's called Blessed Rain. So it's comprised of 20 sheets of washi paper that hang from the ceiling in a semicircular formation. They're dyed with a beautiful indigo pigment and printed with vertical lines. So you can walk around or walk inside of this sculpture and the experience of being around it and within it is much like the experience of being surrounded by rain itself or by a, you know, a real downpour. And one of the topics she explores in this piece is, is our changing associations with rain. How can we think of rain as both a peaceful force and potentially a detrimental force in the face of climate change? Um, but ultimately, it's, it's a hopeful piece. It's one that inspires us to think about a time when we can fall asleep to the sound of rain once again and have that be a really peaceful experience. What a beautiful vision. Like, I, I mean, we're on radio and I'm, I'm wondering if the listeners can actually almost sense the exhibit and it sounds absolutely stunning and gorgeous and really thinking about paper as a medium, you know, you think it's pretty fragile. It's very ephemeral. You know, I don't even know how they create these sturdy pieces to withstand sort of 
the process that they're working from. And, and I've noticed um, you, in the press release, you talk about how they layer, they're weaving, they're shredding, they're folding, really thinking about new ways of taking this material and transforming it. And what I think is interesting is that this exhibit is a really nice tie-in to some of the pieces in your permanent collection. Is that right? That's right. So we're fortunate to have not only a large collection of mostly Edo period uh, Japanese prints in our collection, but also a range of Japanese decorative arts. And I think you touch on something that's really important, even though this exhibition is an exhibition that features contemporary artwork. These contemporary artists are drawing on long histories and long traditions in Japanese art making, not only in paper making, but in the types of themes that they're addressing. Very often there's a deep respect for the materials that are being used, as well as an attention to um, the natural world and a way of weaving the natural world into the works of art that are on view. You know, e even in the most contemporary ways, some of the pieces in the exhibition by an artist named Eriko Horiki are really contemporary sort of sculptural light fixture type pieces. They're called light objects. So mm -hmm. it's washi paper that's actually formed around um, a resin structure and a light emanates from within. So this is, this is an example of an artist who is looking to natural and organic forms. She's looking to traditions and uses of these types of forms in previous Japanese art, but also making them really relevant by sticking an LED bulb inside. You know, they're, they're at once traditional and contemporary. I mean, what a nice melding of the two. And I know this is a traveling exhibit. Can you just tell us a little bit about how this traveling exhibit is going throughout the US and how you were able to secure this exhibit for Springfield Museums? Absolutely. So this is a show that's being traveled by um, a traveling exhibition company called International Art and Artists, whom we worked with before. They serve to connect museums like the Springfield Museums with artists, collectors, and curators. So this exhibit was actually curated by an art historian named Mar MacArthur, who specializes in Japanese art and especially washi art. Um, and this exhibition will I think it will travel. That's what she was about to say before she froze. There, you're back, you're oh, back, there Maggie. There she is. Oh, Welcome back, are. Maggie. <laughs> we have one minute. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, so this will be on view at the Springfield Museums, as you said, through September 4th. And we are going to be having tours of the exhibition on most Mondays at 1 p.m. Um, through August 8th. So be sure to check that out. We're open seven days a week and more information, as always, can be found at our website, springfieldmuseums.org. Maggie North, thank you so much for having thank us, being on the show, and I can't wait to see this show. Thank you. Thank you, Donna Belcasas, and thank you for bringing Maggie North back on the show. Really appreciate having both of you with us. Have a great weekend, everyone. See you back here on Monday. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned. Funded by the U.S. Administration on Aging, the New England Pension Assistance Project has a proven track record of success in obtaining benefits for its clients. From challenging pension denials and miscalculations to helping with the division of retirement assets in divorce and tracking down retirement benefits from past employers, the New England Pension Assistance Project has recovered more than $42 million in retirement benefits for its clients by providing them with free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067. That's 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash New England a public service message from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program.
the only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.